This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Carrie Palin, CMO of Splunk. Carrie is a veteran marketing professional with more than 20 years of experience. Prior to Splunk, Carrie was the CMO of SendGrid, and prior to that, she was at Box, where she was the company's first CMO, as well as senior vice president. Carrie was also the vice president of marketing for IBM's cloud data services and analytics software division, where she oversaw the team responsible for the growth of their SaaS offerings. And she previously spent over 15 years at Dell leading various marketing organizations. On this episode, Carrie talks about the importance of putting the right team on the field, why everything should revolve around the P&L, why she thrives on feedback, and much more. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I'm excited to have you here. I would love to start kind of at the beginning. So if you'll humor me, let's go back to the beginning. Where'd you grow up and where are you from? Yeah, so uh, I, my dad was actually in tech when it wasn't cool back in the 60s and 70s. And so we were a little bit of corporate gypsies moving around between Minneapolis, Boston, Massachusetts, Dallas, Austin, but settled in Austin. So I spent the bulk of my formative years there. So I consider myself an Austinite. It's a great place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any fond memories from the Austin area? Any formative experiences in Texas that you could share? I mean, I it, it's all sports all the time where I come from. So okay, two cool. NFL Super Bowl quarterbacks went to my high school. Um, so I grew up just eyeball deep. If I wasn't playing sports, I was watching sports, right. which is very Texas of me, I know. Uh, <laughs> but also I was raised by two Midwesterners who are just crazy, low-key and pragmatic. Um, both grew up in farm country, self-made. So they kind of always kept us grounded. So I never got the kind of everything is bigger in Texas right. um, thing happening in our house because they always kept us honest and uh, never too overblown for our skis. And uh, it was it was great. It was, Austin was a wonderful place to grow up in, for sure. Very cool. And when you were thinking about planning your exit or your next exploration, what was kind of on your radar at that point? And when did you decide to leave uh, Austin? Yeah. So I so I left for college and came back right afterwards. I started my career at Dell in marketing. So it, actually, to be clear, I started in PR, internal PR. And within three months, they moved me into a brand manager, assistant brand manager role in marketing. And that's where my marketing career started, Very sort cool. of haphazardly. They didn't ask me. They just put me and <laughs> there I went. And I started furiously reading marketing books because I was so scared that I didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> uh, so anyhow, that started there. And then I spent, you know, over the course of 20 years and 16 of 17 of them at Dell in tech in Austin, other than three years in EMEA that Dell sent me over there, but always big corporate. So Fujitsu, IBM, Dell. And uh, I woke up one day and my husband looked at me and he said, hey, are you going to be a lifer at Dell? (laughs) And it never even occurred to me because it just Dell just was so much the anchor of Austin and they were so great at developing you and your career. So I had a new job every 18 months and 
when he asked me that, I thought, oh, my God, like, am I going to be a lifer at Dell? I hadn't even really thought about it. And then, ironically, a couple weeks later, two recruiters called at the same time uh, for roles at IBM and at Ericsson. And I ended up wanting to go to IBM because I was leading marketing for what they call a small startup inside of IBM. But it was basically how to port all their on-prem software to SaaS and hmm. offer it on Bluemix, which was their platform that was competing with AWS. And so I got to work for a 42-year-old founder, a SaaS entrepreneur for a year and some change. And it was wonderful. I learned a ton, got out of Hardwareville, learned about SaaS. And then IBM reorged and Box came calling. And I thought, okay, maybe we make a leap to the Valley. And, you know, there was a little trepidation going from big corporate to working for a 31-year-old founder CEO. But my husband and I just decided, you know, if you don't take a little risk in life, it's pretty boring. So let's give this a whirl. We uh, kept our house in Austin just in case it didn't land, but uh, a year later we sold it because it turned out to be the best move of my career. Very cool. And I think what I'd like to focus on throughout your story is some of the leadership lessons that you learned, whether you were learning them from others or where you were kind of like implementing them. I would love to hear about like, you know, early results at Dell and what you learned there. So Dell is really fascinating for a number of reasons. So we just started working with them and it's kind of, it was shocking for me to see how kind of like on the cutting edge they are. Um, yes. So they do integrated product placements and try to be in movies and all kinds of media. It's really exciting. So, you know, you mentioned that every 18 months you were getting a new position, a new job. What was that culture like there? And what were some leadership lessons you took away from your time at Dell? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Whenever I speak in a professional manner externally, I always talk about the fact that I'm an amalgamation of all the great mentors and leaders that I've worked under um, over the course of my career. And many of them came from my days at Dell. And so, you know, in this day and age where I am a big proponent of diversity, I always have been, but like it's it's now in the front and center of everybody's vernacular and diversity sure. inclusion at every company and what have you, I will tell you my career would not be where it is today without some amazing male mentors and advocates and allies throughout my career. So that's one. Uh, so there are some really incredible people there. Dell also hired some amazing people there. You know, interestingly, Dell has been able to attract great talent because for a long time, they're sort of ahead of the game in disrupting markets, even though they weren't built on IP necessarily as a mm -hmm. company. But also because they were the game in town in Austin, Texas, and anybody who wanted to live in Austin and knew about what a secret it was back 20 years ago sure. and wanted to remain there typically stayed at Dell. So they were able to retain talent. It wasn't the same, like the valley where everybody moves around. Right. And so they built this culture of family that was pretty special. When I finally left Dell, the hardest part was leaving the amazing people there. And as far as the leadership lessons go, I will tell you, um, number one, results matter. I, we used to joke at Dell that if you were sweeping the floors, you needed to know where the PL was at that day in the quarter if one of our GMs walked by and asked you. I mean, it was just, <laughs> we were such a PL driven culture. And right. so I learned about operational excellence and Reliance on data before data science and data analytics were actually something that were sexy. Mm -hmm. uh, Dell was eyeball deep in data at all times. And we knew the numbers. We understood our business, regardless of what role we played. And I will always appreciate that from a, a corporate culture standpoint, but also my mentors taught me about that. And uh, it, it propelled my career because I was... I became a data-driven marketer when most marketers weren't. Right. And all of a sudden, it became very in vogue. And then all, I had a set of skills that were relatively unique as a leader that fast-tracked my career. Uh, so I'm, I'm greatly appreciative for that. I also will tell you that as a leader, it becomes so much less about you as it does about your people. And so curating the best team possible 
every single day is mm-hmm. my number one job. And I think the lesson I've learned over the years is that if you lose sight of that, even for a nanosecond, you've missed it. So going back to my Texas sports kind of roots, I, I always say that my number one job is putting the right team on the field, but the right team captains matter most. Because as they go, so the rest of the team goes. And right. we, our job is to enable every single member of my team to come and do their very best work every day and feel safe and included and able to bring their best version of themselves. You know, all boats rise and everyone wins. But that means that it's not just a rah-rah. That means making hard decisions. Sure. So when we talk to leaders about, like, what does that look like? Well, it, to me, the number one priority is curating the fringes of your org. So looking after your high highest performers and highest potential folks in a way that's meaningfully different than the rest of the pack. Mm. And then also the folks who aren't pulling their weight. And, you know, I'll give you an example. You have people who don't show up to work for weeks on end and they're posting on social outlets that they're doing something other than work, but they're po- drawing a paycheck and yet they're friends with half your org on social media. People know that that, that kills morale, right? So you've got to stay on top of that stuff to make sure that if somebody's not happy and they're not performing well, that you're immediately in the weeds with them figuring out what's the right solution there. Right. Um, so you don't have the rest of your org flailing because they see that you allow that as a leader and you're not taking care of the people who are busting their butts for the organization, right? right? So there's a lot in, implied in that, but it's a lot of work and it's every day. Yeah. And I think what you mentioned about the foundation of that culture uh, revolving around data and the PNL is mm. fascinating because, you know, if the PNL doesn't look good, none of us have opportunity, right? The opportunity right. pie isn't going to expand for everybody if we're not focused on data and the PNL. That's so right. when you first, you know, encountered that data culture and that maniacal focus on the PNL, how'd you react to that, right? Where, did you think, oh, this is a culture about money or did you think, no, this, there's something deeper going on here? No, I, for me, it was as the success of the company goes, so goes our personal success. Right. And so waking up every day and thinking about how I can help drive the P&L better for Dell, maybe think about the fact that that will enable our stock price and everybody will be happier because we can afford college educations for our kids and the house we want to live in and all those things that matter outside of work that allow for you to be your best self. And even if it's time off to go run marathons, whatever that is. But when the company's healthy, stress is lower, people are happier. It just all kind of plays together. Mm. So for me, I loved becoming data-driven in that capacity. And as MarTech has advanced in data science and data analysts, like we are able to actually get our hands on as marketers, compelling data that actually threads the needle all the way through to revenue Mm -hmm. that is marketing source, marketing influenced in a way that is org function neutral between all the go-to-market functions. And it's really been an exciting time to be a marketer, especially in the last like eight years because of changes and advancements in marketing from a technology standpoint. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting time. So let's just back it up one more time and then we'll just like move forward ahead into the future. But I'm curious to know, what type of sports did you play? And let's start there. Uh, So I grew up with a brother and in a neighborhood of all boys, an older brother. So, and I'm tall, which you can't tell from listening to a podcast. I'm 5'10". So I played a lot of volleyball. I played basketball. And then I also was... (laughs) And this is a funny one, but uh, I was a competitive cheerleader that like was on the national cheerleading championships every year. So not um, easy to get to nationals. That's, no, yeah. no. I mean, it, people don't realize that it's an actual sport, but it is. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun. But I think in general, sports just taught me a lot about resilience. It, when you get your butt kicked, how do you get back up the next day and, and work harder? Sure. And excellence and working together, most importantly, just some foundational skills that have played very well in my adult life that I'm so grateful to have, have gotten at that age. 
Very cool. And let's shift gears uh, yeah. a moment to your time getting ready for the move out here to Box. Mm-hmm. So at the time, Box was not post IPO. They were it was still kind of early days. And I think across the your tenure, Box revenue doubled with you as the CMO. You know, they getting did. to lead that team. I'd be curious to know. You know, what was that like getting ready to join, and then what was that experience like? Yeah. So it's, uh, so it's a really actually funny story. Back to the a 31 year old founder, and we actually had gone public right before I joined. Oh my uh, fault. So yeah. no big deal, but just a minor nit, just to kind of lay the groundwork. But sure. Box had had their first bad quarter since going public. Not bad, but not awesome. Right. And so I interviewed for three months, and I usually would fly out here on Sundays in the morning and fly back on Sunday nights. And I'd do hours with the CEO and other people, and then he'd give me homework for my flight home. I'd send it to him that night at 1 a.m. when I'd land or whenever it was, and he'd get back to me a few days later. And uh, it was a classic Silicon Valley sort of grinder through, because I had never actually done a public company CMO role, right? Sure. And he really was trying to figure out how to solve for some things. And a lot of things were broken within the marketing org at that time. And to no one's fault, but they hadn't had a CMO in over a year and things were sideways and they weren't able to measure things and they didn't have the right MarTech stack. And so it was just, they had never run a true tier one campaign in market, like just basic fundamentals of blocking and tackling. So we had a lot to kind of figure out if I was right for them, if he was right for me and that culture. And we finally just kind of sat down at the, when we decided to do this thing and he and the COO, Dan Levin, whom I adore. And Dan was my direct line manager. And I I said, Dan, what's your, what's your biggest concern about me taking this job? And he said, well, you've never done this before. I said, you're right. And he's like, what's your biggest concern? And I was like, that, wait, can I swear? Sure. Yeah. I was like, this could be a big, disaster because right. I've never done this before. Right. Like you just don't know. And I said, but what I, on the same page. Yeah. But what I can tell you is I'm going to die trying. You need to give me lots of feedback because I, I thrive on feedback. So you give me the guardrails and tell me when I'm making decisions that you're not happy with or supportive of and, you know, guide me as far as I'm ramping into box, but let's go do this thing. And so my husband and I took a deep breath and dove into the deep end of the pool and away we went. And we're now actually buying a house in Silicon Valley and putting roots down, <laughs> which is crazy three years later to say That's that. That's great. Congrats. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So I'm curious, what does your husband do and how was that move for him? Because, you know, taking yeah. a, C- a CMO role, I'm sure you didn't have a lot of time at that point, right? So no. what was that like for him? And yeah. Yeah, he's he's amazingly bright um, and is definitely my better half, but he's an entrepreneur and takes risks that I that make my skin crawl. You know, he likes to swing for the fence and I like to work for the man. So it's all good. But he had just sold his company in Texas right before we moved. So it was a perfect time. Perfect timing. And yeah. so he had a little bit of time to help our kids and me and kind of be available to get settled. And he's off to his next venture right now, kind of standing up another company. Very cool. So, have yeah. to have him on Mission Daily when yeah. you launch. Yeah, get it going. Yeah. Um, that's exciting. So at Box, you mentioned they had never done like a tier one campaign or anything like that. What were, you know, what was your first 90 days like there? Or what was the first campaign maybe you put together and launched? Yeah. So uh, first 90 days, huge listening tour. doesn't matter where I go. You don't know what you don't know. And um, you really need to listen at every level of the organization and every stakeholder. You can learn a lot, right? By using your ears and your mouth in the same proportion that God gave them to you. Sure. And so that was that. I will tell you that, you know, the morale was pretty low at that time with marketing. And that concerned me the most because when you want to retain your talent and also build and attract talent, 
as the number one job of a CMO, uh, you have to get into that immediately and, and earning trust faster than a normal clip. And so it, we had a very open, good culture as a company. Marketing struggled as a subculture, subculture of that culture. And so I worked on that primarily with the team and then also making moves on the leadership team to kind of get the right team captains in place. And then we immediately kind of sat down and re, we were going through a brand reimagination at the time. So sort of category two. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got there, we were calling ourselves the modern content platform. And frankly, it just fell flat. Like customers didn't understand what that was. We were owning our space at the time, which was the content collaboration space where the Dropboxes and Microsoft OneDrives play. But we also had such an advanced feature set that we were eating away at enterprise content management. So classic like right. open text, documentum, that type of thing. And the world didn't know about it. So we were trying to reinvent ourselves at this juncture of those two categories where we believe the puck was going in the market, but mm-hmm. they hadn't gone yet. And I will tell you the AR team there that I was lucky enough to inherit did a masterful job at getting the gartners and foresters of the world to believe in that and move that direction with us kind of leading the charge. Uh, and we went this whole category rebuild where we called ourselves cloud content management, which funnily enough, Aaron was very very opposed to it at the beginning, even though he's a brilliant brand guy, because anything that's content management or associated with ECM to him is legacy, on-prem, not sexy. And so it took a while for us to kind of all convince each other that cloud content management implied that it was something very modern, but that we could draft off of a larger market that CIOs understood. That they have a budget line item for, right? Because modern content platform was something that no one had a budget line item for, right? And it makes the job of our salespeople so much harder when they go to market. So it it ended up landing really, really well. And the team did an amazing job. And I, you know, give all credit to them because they were amazing. Our brand team and our content team and our product marketing team just really put it all out there. And it has landed really well for Box. It seems like adding that one word of cloud can help tee up salespeople to start talking about security and all the reasons why enterprises buy, right? Totally. Have you noticed that throughout your career that like small tweaks to existing campaigns or ideas can make huge results? Huge. Yeah. Huge. I think sometimes, honestly, as marketers, we tend to over-rotate on creativity Hmm. and we sometimes just confuse folks when we're trying to be too cute or... or, I don't know. I think sometimes being very simple and hammering the market with a very simple message that people already have a headspace for, but maybe just a small tweak to it is radically important, especially when you don't have the budgets of Microsoft or Amazon to go push in the market, right? I mean, Azure is a success and Cortana is a success because Microsoft has zillions of dollars to throw at marketing campaigns to get the market educated on that. But the boxes of the world don't don't have that. And, and, And Splunk doesn't have that level of marketing investment either. We have a decent amount, but you need to be able to draft off of big themes in market so that you can get broader play. So what was that transition from Box to SendGrid to Splunk-like? Because I, I know it, it was all, it's all pretty recent, right? So yes. you joined Splunk in February. You were at SendGrid prior to that. Yes. Um, what was that transition like? So I left Box after two and a quarter years or so, and it was a great run, and I loved it. But I was ready for my next adventure when SendGrid came calling. And I'm a big believer you work for people. Loved working for Dan Levin and Aaron Levy. Loved it. I really fell in love with in a professional way, in a non-creepy professional way, with Samir Delakia, who is the CEO of SendGrid. He's just an amazing guy and probably one of the best leaders in the Valley. And uh, when I met with him, I thought, yeah, I could learn from this guy. And I've got so much to learn still. But also marketing owned about 90% of the revenue at SendGrid. So it was wow. all Discover Tribe, yeah. uh, which was part of our portfolio at Box. And 
a big portion of IBM, but it was wholesale marketing owned revenue. So it changed the dynamic of what my role was, even though it was a smaller company, it was still public and growing 30 plus percent year over year. So it was functioning well, but it was needing its sort of next step in growth. And a month into being there, Twilio announced their intent to purchase us, which which was awesome. Uh, Twilio is a fantastic company. I have nothing but respect for where they're going and their leadership team. But I knew that over time, my role would change once we were acquired, which I stayed through the acquisition, which I was happy to do. But the day that was announced, Splunk called, and I wasn't ready to talk yet. But when I was, <laughs> I, it, everything fell into place. I wasn't looking to leave. Right. But when I think when the magic happens and like things, literally everything falls into place and there are no concerns, you know you're in the right place. And so, cool. yeah. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to go into some more detail about you know what that handoff was like and what the process of you kind of like you know, as CMO of SendGrid, passing off the the reins or whatever you want to call it to Sarah and then transitioning out because, you know, obviously it's kind of bittersweet. You're leaving sure. after the acquisition. Sure. Um, how do CMOs go about that? And any tips for CMOs that are, you know, currently going yeah. through an acquisition or career change? Totally. Um, leave your ego at the door, number one. Yeah. When you're being acquired, number two, remember that. Like this wasn't a merger. This was an acquisition. And Twilio was incredibly gracious through our merger, sorry, through our acquisition and right. treated us more like a merger. But the reality was it wasn't about me. It wasn't about making sure that we kept everything in a capsule and didn't touch it. The reality was we needed to do what was right for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And so I will tell you, Sarah Varney's just outstanding. I have so much respect for her. And I, I'm so happy. She was someone I was happy to give my team to, essentially. And and I know that she's taken good care of them already and will only take them to the next step. So that allowed for me to put on my team hat and not think about it as SendGrid versus Twilio. It was what's the greater good. And also my team's thrilled to work for her. So it was an easier transition than normal, but check your ego at the door. Think about what's right for the greater good, right? I mean, the reality is at some point after an acquisition, it's very rare that brands stay separate and there isn't a brand lockup between the two. And so think about what's going to drive the greater company forward back to sort of those Dell lessons. It's about how do you, especially when you're publicly traded, right? Mm -hmm. How do you deliver to Wall Street? They're expecting when you do a big acquisition. And for Twilio, SunGrid was a big acquisition at the time. I think it was maybe the third or fourth largest all stock transaction ever in tech, like it was significant. And I remember, you know, sitting in the room when Samir and Jeff Lawson were speaking with financial analysts right at uh, at their uh, customer event at Signal. And half the analysts were like, Samir, why in God's name would you sell right now? You guys are growing over 30% year over year. You're profitable. You know, the rule of 40 applies. Like, why, why would you do that? In the same time, the other half of the room were looking at Jeff and saying, we think you overpaid for this company. <laughs> Why'd you do that? And Good at the, balance to strike. <laughs> right, right, right. But at the end of the conversation after an hour, just about every analyst was like, ah. Oh, I get it. I get it. Yeah. And it was so beautiful to see that transformation in the course of an hour. And I believed, too, that it was really the right thing for both companies. Right. And so when you do feel that way, it's easy to behave in a way that's right by that every day. And so on day one, even though it wasn't originally the plan, a third to a half of my team moved under Sarah immediately. And that was the right oh, decision. Well, yeah. So and, and and ultimately, most of them will will move over as the transitions occur. But there is a need for keeping something separate because SendGrid does monetize online and Twilio, for the most part, monetizes offline. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, you know, getting all that MarTech and websites to integrate. It's non-trivial. Yes. And so. 
Let's talk about Splunk for a moment because I would love to get your kind of like philosophy or your mental models that you were using for how you evaluated this opportunity because Splunk is exciting. It's a very technical product, but the room that Splunk has to grow is substantial in the market. So how are you looking at that opportunity and what made you really excited about joining? Yeah, it's funny. I won't mention names, but a couple of hot companies that have gone IPO this year called at the same time Splunk did. Uh, and they were awesome, and I was so thrilled that they called, but I knew immediately that Splunk was where I wanted to be. And the reason I did is, number one, I'm very comfortable in the Wall Street cadence and public company thing. I also will never work for a company again that isn't on a big growth trajectory that has been validated by uh, quarterly earnings, right? Right. And so at Splunk, most folks don't realize what rarefied air we're in right now at Splunk. I mean, growing 40-plus percent year over year at $2 billion in revenue is rarefied air. Yeah, yeah. Very few software companies have ever gotten to this altitude. And yet we have still so much more headroom, right? And so I think growing up at Dell, I am most comfortable in the, hey, we're a teenager and we need to get to fully grown adult stage as far as my skill set is concerned and getting to rapid growth and and massive scale Mm -hmm. is my happy spot versus being pre-IPO. But that's super important to me from the type of company I want to work for. The other thing is back to that comment about who you work for matters. Sure. The human beings I work for matter more than anything. And the culture around the leadership team and the whole company matter. So I will never work for people who aren't wonderful humans at their core outside of work. I love it. Yeah. Uh, so Doug and Susan and I spent a lot of time interviewing and I asked for more dinners and more meetings and more meetings before I met anybody else at Splunk because I wanted to make sure that the three of us really were on the same page as humans. Right. Right. Because it gets gnarly and messy and stressy at the e-staff level in any company. And so knowing that you you all to some degree see the world the same way or, you know, I have young kids and I needed to know that that was okay with Doug and Susan because there are moments where I'm going to have to step out of something important to go take care of my kids, but right. then I can be back on at midnight if I need to. Right. And that's not okay with some CEOs that is okay with others. And they've been incredibly gracious to me. And to the point that, um, Three days into my tenure here, my dad had an emergent heart issue and had to go home for his surgery. And he didn't make it past two days post-surgery, and that was not expected. And the way that Susan and Doug and this organization treated me for the three weeks I took off after that to take care of my mom and get things in order was just beyond belief. They were so amazing to me, and I'd only been on the payroll for three days. And it just reaffirmed to me that I made the the best decision I've ever made in my career to come to Splunk, not only because it's an amazing company, but because I'm working for the right people. And it makes me want to work even harder to make this company a success. Well, I'm sorry, yeah. to, hear, sorry to hear about your dad. Um, Thank you. I guess, you know, dark nights of the soul, sometimes they happen when we can't plan for them. We have no idea they're totally. coming. That's a lot on your plate all at once when you yeah. just joined the company. How did you get through that? And is there any... Um, you know, you mentioned that Doug and Susan were helpful in that. How'd you get through it? Yeah, you know, everybody believes in different things. I believe in God, but I will tell you that I think God put me in Susan's organization for a reason, many reasons. Uh, she lost her dad a little over a year ago. I mean, was very close to him, much like I was with mine. My dad was my best friend and mentor, as well as being my dad. So if there's one person who had walked a mile in those shoes who really understood, it was her. And so that was amazing. But my team gave me a little bit of space to kind of get my footing. And they all gave me a little bit of runway to get ramped into here, probably more than normal, which is not how I like to start. I like to be fast and furious in life. And, you know, I needed a little bit of time to get my sea legs again, which I've got back. And I think it's important to figure out what it takes. Each person's different, right? But for me, 
focusing on the priorities in life and getting back to the basics on what really matters versus what's just noise. Mm-hmm. My friend, uh, Shannon Brayton, who's a CMO at LinkedIn, she and I have kids in the same classes and she's one of my first friends in the Valley, but she always said to me, know, know your non-negotiables. And it should only be two to three things, but you should not negotiate on those. And I feel the same way about life, like ruthless prioritization. And this brought me into very clear focus about what that is. And also, I think just remembering every day, like being having gratitude. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have had a wonderful life so far, and I'm very grateful. It hasn't been without its lumps, but every night go to bed thinking about the good stuff. Um, and I think that accelerates healing for sure. Wise so. words. When it comes to building your marketing team here at Splunk, I'm curious, how are you thinking about building that team? And you mentioned earlier, you know, marketing is basically building a subculture inside a larger culture. Mm -hmm. How's that going? Uh, So I had the great privilege of inheriting a pretty healthy marketing team here. So that's not always the case when companies are searching for new CMOs. And uh, oftentimes, I'm sure you know, but the CMO role is about the shortest tenure in the Valley. Yeah, new HBR report shows it's dropping from, I think, 18 months to maybe less than that now. So it's crazy. Not good. Yeah, it's not good. And and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. But I, I think misalignment between CMOs and CEOs and COOs during the interview process is a big part of that. Right. So anyhow, as a consequence, marketing orgs get thrashed because they have new leaders all the time. And it's really hard for people to find their footing when they don't have some stability at the leadership layer. And sadly, at Splunk, we our original CMO passed away from cancer in the last two years, I believe. And then uh, the gentleman who came as our second CMO left around two years. So they just haven't had a ton of like stability, right, mm-hmm. for long term. And in the last three years or so, and so my number one job when I got here was to take all these talented people and and just lay bare the fact that I'm a human being too. And I'm here to listen. I'm here to learn. But I'm also here to help them get to their very best version of themselves and collectively as a team. I truly believe in Pat Lencioni's book, The Advantage, where they talk about or he talks about smart and healthy orgs mm-hmm. are the ones who really succeed. And health, it's very crucial that health means a lot of things, you know, transparency and clarity and and a leadership team that actually works together versus against each other. And so I've been working very hard to sit down and figure out, you know, make minimal change to the team because that's thrashy, but the changes that are necessary in the first six months so that we can set it and move forward knowing that this is how we will stabilize for the future. And mm-hmm. for, you know, FY21 will be the big year of like major movement and contribution from a marketing perspective. Right. And we needed this year to sort of sort through. Or where are we spending money that's smart? Where are we spending money that's not? What does the ROI look like on everything that we're putting in market? And are we under-resourced in areas of headcount? And it turns out our product marketing was really under-resourced compared to sure. product management that had bulked up in the last year and compared to our field sales, which had bulked up. And all of a sudden, they were getting squeezed. So getting that right-sized and just all the basic blocking and tackling and hygiene of an organization right. is going on so that we can then go do our best work and go from you know $1 in and $15 out of pipeline to one dollar in and get to 28 to 30 in the not too distant future, because that's what I'd like to be doing. Sure. Um, what type of campaigns did you inherit? So I've seen a number in The Wall Street Journal and other yeah. places. I, I love love the feel. It's uh, it's arresting. It catches your vision. Um, but what campaigns did you inherit and any ones that you can talk about now? Sure. So, again, I inherited some really talented people. So all of our creative, for the most part, is done in-house. And I have to say the creative team is, is pretty brilliant. There's the Embrace Data Chaos campaign that came last year and then the Dark Data Report that came out, I believe, in 
February, March. Oh, sorry, April. In April. That I was got, during the time that I was away. With, desk. It's great. Sorry, that's yeah, when I was no away with my dad's death. So I'm a little fuzzy on the exact date that it dropped. Sure. But so it came out in April, which is really the precursor to our reimagination of our brand, which is coming this fall. Oh, great. Um, so you'll see some stuff coming in the not too distant future that's going to crystallize who we are in our next phase of growth as a company and what we offer the market. I think, you know, back to the fact that we're $2 billion-ish in revenue, we're probably one of those brands that, that the fewest people know of that are actually $2 billion in revenue. Right. And part of that is because we're a very technical product that data centers love and IT geeks love and security and CISOs and CIOs. But if you don't run in that lane, you may not have always heard of Splunk. And so our intent is to educate the broader market on who Splunk is, because the reality is we believe most problems are ultimately data problems. And Splunk solves data problems. And we allow you to get to your data real time, pretty much wherever it lives, and right. and then go solve for those data problems. And so you're going to see our messaging coalescing around that concept. And I'll be excited to watch that uh, evolution. I think that the uh, your podcast campaigns are uh, going great, though. Just want to let you know. Awesome. Just a heads up. Great. Full disclosure. <laughs> yeah, full disclosure. That's uh, Thank you. partly us. But yeah, <laughs> yes. we're, we're really excited for that. What tips do you have for us when we're out, you know, creating and representing the Splunk brand, we're obviously like trying to learn as fast as we can and prepare any type of guidance or maybe like your brand guidelines that you have that you like to talk about? Yeah. You know, look, I'll give you some meta level ones. I'll give you some guardrails. And then as soon as we launch the new branding, I'd love to get in the weeds on the would, on the more specific guidelines. But I would say, number one, we're not just a technology company. Like, again, if you look at what's going on in the world, just about every problem needs some sort of data to solve it, right? right. Whether it's human trafficking or global warming, what whatever, even if it's, you know, I don't want to get political, but election hacking. I mean, there's data out there that we can't get our hands on back to the dark data. The mm -hmm. reality is so much of an organization's data is not accessible, not visible, and we all need to know what's going on in order to solve for it. We can't manage what we cannot measure, right? Right. And so Splunk is so much bigger than what people have previously known us as. And as we're expanding our portfolio and our innovation curve is ramping up in rapid speed, like Back to why I came here, when I interviewed with Tim Tully, he told me they had hired like 350 engineers in the last year in the Valley. Wow. I about choked. I mean, no one does that, right? Unless you've got an incredible yeah. roadmap, really sexy ideas that are coming to fruition, and an incredible leader leading that organization. And so I thought, you know, that's where I want to be. I want to be at this place where we're going to be hiring at scale yeah. some crazy talent so that we can take this technology to the next level and beyond. And so that's going to be for our brand. It's really elevating it mm -hmm. right now. And I know people say that, but truthfully, we've been in the bowels of the data center and kicking butt. I mean, no pun intended, but we need to be where CEOs understand that we are their best friend mm -hmm. and CISOs know that as well. And we are used for much broader use cases and applications that we're being used for today. But I think the world needs to understand that. Yeah. And I think that everybody out there that's listening that might be interested in Splunk, that's the type of thing that I know pushes many people over yeah. the edge from being interested to getting more info because you know, with 350 engineers, that's a lot. So any org and CTO that are putting together that level of campaign and project. That's really exciting. Yeah. Um, and those are just net new in the last year on top of the engineers we already had. So like we have this crazy yeah, large organization yeah. that is doing great work. Very cool. Yeah. Um, what type of mediums are you most excited about now? Or is it video? Is it audio? Is it VR, AR? Uh, or is it just classic, you know, digital? You know, it's interesting. As moving to the Bay, I'm a commuter now. And my only quiet time in my life, because I have two young people and a brand new puppy and an organization at Splunk, is right. during my commute, right? So 
I think a lot of people actually feel the same way. And so I love audio and I feel like the world is gravitating towards audio and even just books that I want. I mean, sure. I love, I, I used to have a stack of books on my nightstand and I just blow through them every night. I don't have that luxury anymore. And so I listen to books like literally while I'm on the road. Um, I listen to podcasts, um, but I, I find that audio has had a renaissance yeah. because of all the commute lifestyle that we're all in these days whether it be on a train, in your car, what have you. Right. I literally bought the car that I bought in the last year, and I'm not a car person because the software was so good. Yeah, because just I wanted on a car like, player. Yeah, yeah, I wanted a one-click Apple CarPlay so Same. I could just listen to yep. stuff without being distracted on the road. Yeah. And I literally bought the car and within 10 minutes of seeing it. I was like, okay, this car I want software's great. Let's go. I have no idea. Like I got the car home. My husband was pressing buttons. He's like, do you have massagers in your front seats? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, you do? Like I had no idea because yeah. I just wanted the software. Yeah. So, very cool. Yeah. Um, so we like to uh, call podcasts and audio. It's, it's basically augmented reality that works. It doesn't require extra tinkering or anything to set up. It doesn't require a new device, um, but you can do more while you're learning or while you're uh, getting information. So are there any favorite audio sources that you mentioned, you know, audio books, um, any good books come to mind, any good podcasts uh, that you're listening to lately? Yeah. So I will say again, and I know a lot of people have read this book, but I just think if you're a leader and you're trying to curate great leadership dynamic, um, The Advantage is literally one of my favorite books. I just, you know, I think The Five Dysfunctions of a Team are also good by Lencioni. I'm sort of a, a Lencioni believer, but I I truly think The Advantage is, is a non-starter for any leader. Okay. I think even early stage leaders, like the thing you forget about is, is curating a healthy dynamic and you don't talk about the tough stuff in the team meeting rooms. You talk about it in back channel and it causes this erosion of your org. Like right. the, what they teach you and the practical steps on how to run staff meetings and things of that nature. I just find inc- like I've reread it again and we're about to train on it uh, here with my leadership team at Splunk. And I did that at Box. That's the number one I'd go read. And then I listen to stuff that's not work related. I'm a World War II history freak. Oh, and so cool. yeah. I do a lot of that um, just because, and, and I read about dog training because I've got a six-month-old unruly puppy. So here we go. <laughs> um, and speaking of your German Shepherd puppy, um, could you introduce them uh, maybe? Yeah. And, yeah. So yeah. when did you get him? Uh, he came home on Friday, actually. We lost our last dog a year ago Friday uh, on my daughter's fifth birthday, sadly. So we brought home the new one on my daughter's sixth birthday. And he is a six-month-old therapy-trained German Shepherd. So he'll be able to do nursing home therapy in the not too distant future, which I'm pumped about. It's another side passion of mine. It's a very um, neglected portion of our population in the States. So if I can put a plug in, go visit an elderly human sometime soon and tell them you appreciate them. They need to hear that. Cool. Um, Check it out. Yeah. uh, So, but uh, Thor Elizabeth is his name. My nine-year-old son, (laughs) my nine-year-old son got the first name and my five, now six-year-old daughter got the middle name. And it was almost Thor Churro, as I think I explained (laughs) earlier, but it became Thor Elizabeth and it suits him. So I love it. Are there any tips you have for leaders that are listening to this interview right now and thinking about how do I uncover dark data? How do I make my org more of a data, data-driven org? Any high-level tips? Yeah, I, I literally, just about everywhere I go in a new job, I make sure that, number one, before I, I sign on to a new company, that the CEO, the COO are supportive of me hiring data analysts and data scientists. Some don't believe that needs to sit in marketing. And, and my belief is that you typically have a centralized org that has the Bible, if you will, of the company data, but 
analyzing that through a marketing lens is a whole discipline. And you need someone, if they're pitching that data to you, you need somebody who can catch it Mm -hmm. um, and manage the home plate. And so you need some folks embedded in marketing. I firmly believe that. It doesn't need to be an army of people, but you need some folks to do that. And it's just as much human talent as it is uh, technology. So whether you're working with Splunk or whether you have Tableau with that or what have you, you're going to have a set of tools that will surface the data for you. But you need people who strategically can, can glean insights and make recommendations on that. And so for me, it's super important to understand this is human and science put together mm-hmm. and technology and people. And so you need to find great people, reward great people, uh, make sure they know that they're important to the organization and not a, a footnote to it. And today's strategy, analytics and data and insights are at the forefront of any organization I, I curate and lead and uh, they make me better. And I would tell a leader that if you're not at least twice a week getting in the weeds on data with your team, you're missing it because data things are moving fast. So I like to have a basic dashboard set up, you know, within the first few months of working somewhere where when I open my system every day, I can see the top metrics that I need to understand. Um, and my team knows that if something's sideways, what I want to know is like text me immediately if you know mm-hmm. there's something that's off the rails so that you can get on it because because things can, things are going to happen, mm-hmm. right? And the business isn't always going to be a well-oiled machine, but how you respond to it, how quickly you get on top of it, surface it, talk about it, learn from it, and truly fail fast mm-hmm. uh, is going to be the difference between the org succeeding and not succeeding. And data is going to be at the base of that. Sure. And when you're talking with your other friends that are uh, SVPs of marketing or CMOs, here in the Valley, are there any themes that you notice about other CMOs facing similar challenges or do you continually hear the same story or what's that like when you're talking with them? Yeah, I will say, I think the thing that surprised me most about the Valley in a a pleasant way is that uh, it's a very fraternal place. Right. And so I was introduced to a bunch of CMOs in the Valley when I first got here and they have remained friends. Uh, allies, trusted advisors, the whole thing. And we, we share a lot. And I there's a very consistent theme with it's not just about your brand anymore or about your comms. It's truly about the performance of the business. And marketing in most companies has a very legitimate seat at the table and a significant seat in many cases. And so the onus as, as far as being a PL contributor is massive. But what's interesting is CMOs right now have come up in different functions, right? We all come up in different swim lanes because there's so many functions within marketing. Some of them came from product marketing, some of them in brand, some of them in comms. I have friends who came up through comms and had never done demand gen, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. they're a CMO of a big company, right? And so how do you solve for that? And one of my friend's best pieces of advice was do reverse mentoring, right? Go to the very bottom of your organization and sit with your SEO manager and have them mentor you once a week for 30 minutes, right? That's and, great. And, yeah. and again, putting your ego at the door right. and learning, right? This is about how do we as a team get collectively better? And none of us can be completely expert in every discipline in marketing, Every day of the week. Right. And so hire great people, learn from great people, and check your ego at the door. Very cool. And when it comes to working with Susan and Doug, uh, they've been guests and you know I loved interviewing them, learned a lot. Uh, how are you all thinking about aligning sales and marketing here at Splunk? Uh, so I think the fact that I work for Susan should probably say a lot um, in and of itself. And I'm so thrilled to work for her. She's an amazing leader and, a, and also a really good human. But I would say that she is the lifeblood of this company behind Doug and uh, a lot of the success that Splunk has seen in the last three years have been she and Doug combined, right? Just really plowing through this. And her go-to-market vision is 
amazing and shrewd and on point. So I love being that. And, and the reality is it, we aren't a marketing org. We're part of a greater GTM org. Mm-hmm. And, and as such, that's customer success, which is wildly important, especially as we're transitioning more to being a cloud first company. Right. And then also, you know, partners and channel and then sales. Right. And so if we're not all highly functioning together, mm-hmm. this company won't be a $5 billion company in the distant, you know, short term, um, which we hope we will be and can see pretty clear line of sight to getting there. Yeah. So. The one theme from Susan's interview was just like the global scope of how, how she was thinking about everything. Yeah. How are you thinking about emerging markets? And because uh, Splunk is already a global product, yes. but how are you thinking about expansion there? Any uh, early things you can share? I know we're not at the fall yet. Yeah. Yeah. No. So here's what I'll say. Like you have to take care of your global markets, but I also, again, back to ruthless prioritization, right? right? Like, could we go harder in Chile? Yes, I'm sure we could. Does it make more sense to make sure that every asset we have is translated in German and multiple localizations there? Absolutely, because the market opportunity is larger. Mm -hmm. So where do you go first versus where do we need to go in totality? Two very different questions. But, you know, I think the, you know, the usual suspects, right, like Japan, France, Germany, big from a localization and international priority perspective, but LATAM's heating up for us. And I, I just see so many different markets. The good news is we're in a technology area that the whole world needs and half of them don't know they need it yet. Right. right. And so it's like, it isn't one of those things that we're scratching and clawing for a declining market share. We're actually, we can't get to the market fast enough. So how do we prioritize so that my team of, you know, roughly 200 people is spending every hour wisely on mm-hmm. the biggest opportunity short term and then building the long tail. So, you know, stay tuned for the long tail. But, uh, you know, part of that is geographic markets. And part of that is how folks actually consume Splunk, right? And how we monetize that and what that motion looks like. Very cool. I love it. We're gonna have to circle back for round two when we get a fall update. That's exciting. Any final words, thoughts or stories you want to leave our listeners with? I mean, I would just say this 10 years ago, I didn't know I wanted to be a CMO. I knew I wanted to be a marketer and I wanted to be a damn good one. And I wanted to be successful and contribute and be a great team player. And I then had some mentors kind of say that I needed to go hard into the leadership lane because that was where my towering strength was, was with people. But I didn't really want the hassle of it. And they said, no, it's time to kick you out of the nest. And it was the greatest favor anybody has ever done me because the moment I really went headlong into leading larger teams, mm-hmm. I found my footing and my my passion and my career took off. And so I would just say, you don't have to know everything as a millennial or at the you know, age of 25 about what you want to be in the future. That can ebb and flow over the course of, of your career, but have the guts to like dive in even when you're not ready. Have the Take risks. Mm-hmm. What's the worst that, that can actually happen? I mean, my career has taken off and been the most rewarding when I've done things that have been really hard. But you take something that looks gnarly and you make something beautiful of it, and it can be the greatest experience of your career. So, Carrie, I love that. That's a great place to end the interview. We'll see everybody next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes.
you have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.